This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I'm Alex and this is Time to Talk. Do you know how to be human? This is the question I am sitting on with today's guest, clinical psychologist, Dr. Sophie Mort. We have a chat about emotions and how we manage them. You know, one of the things I really notice is that it's the fact that we fear so many of our emotions that makes them so much more overwhelming. Whereas when you can externalize and visualize something like anger as the middle manager, it it gives you some of the power back. But also, we speak about the attachment types. Get clear on boundaries and figure out what it means to be human in a world that gives us an unnuanced view of humanity, especially on social media. Dr. Soph is the author of A Manual for Being Human, and we get into the core parts of what that means in this episode. As per rate, review and subscribe, share the episode with your mates, your dates and your familial ties. And don't forget, if you want to join the Time to Talk community, join us on Facebook, where we have chats weekly about mental health, the podcast and more. Head over to alexholmes.co to find out more. Now, let's get into this heart-to-heart. It's time to talk. Hello, welcome Sophie to Time to Talk. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm really excited to be on here because obviously you and I have chatted on and off kind of behind the scenes and on Instagram and now we get to meet and talk. And so thank you so much for inviting me on. It's a huge, huge pleasure. Like I love all the stuff that you're doing. Um, your book, A Manual for Being Human, is great so far. As I've said, I've had been making so many notes in the, in the book. <laughs> and as you know, uh, listeners know, I'm a super like psychology nerd. I'm really kind of, I love it so much i love kind of finding out new things and learning about different stuff so um i'm happy to have this convo with an actual psychologist (laughs) so let's actually start with um who is who is dr (laughs) dr soph (laughs) well i'm just a regular girl um no i am um a clinical psychologist who's working very much like you actually to get psychology out of the therapy room and into people's lives ideally before they need it in a way that 
is accessible, makes sense to them and meets them where they're at. Um, Because I think we've all really been set up to struggle. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is there's almost a manual for everything, isn't there? If you want to fix your car, there's a Haynes manual. If you want to fix your socks, sew something, there's a magazine for that. But often when it comes to the very normal experiences that make us human, such as our emotions, we don't know the first place to understand ourselves. Mm. We don't know what to do when anger comes up, when anxiety comes up, when sadness comes up. Mm. In fact, what we normally do is try and push those emotions away, Mm. making them more likely to stick around. Mm. And then we criticize ourselves for struggling. Mm. So I'm trying to get more than the basic psychology out there so that when people struggle, they know what to do, know how to support themselves, and importantly, know how to show up for each other when their friends and family are struggling too. Yeah, I see some of the big things that people don't really think about when it comes to psychology. Like, what don't we know about psychology? For a really long time, that information was kept in dusty old textbooks mm-hmm. behind therapy room doors in the ivory towers of university. And really... Um, information that could be taught in school is only really accessed when people I don't know about you I don't know what you think about this but I think a lot of people don't end up asking for support until they're really struggling Mm -hmm. and then there are so many hoops that they have to jump through to get in front of a therapist right so waiting lists um maybe you're in a server in an area that doesn't even have a service maybe you're able to pay for a private therapist but don't know where to start there have been so many boundaries and barriers to finding out the basics so I actually often think rather than what don't we know about psychology it's like seriously what do the people in your life actually know about psychology because most people just think we're meant to feel happy and everything else is bad mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I think that because a lot of the stuff that I've been looking at um, in recent times has been, mm. recently it's been a lot about trauma. I've been looking a lot into oh. trauma and what that looks like. Um, but also, I think I think in the early stages of like delving into all of this stuff was about emotional education and what we do yeah. with those emotions. Um, and I love this question I'm going to ask. If I did, yeah. like, well, what is your favourite emotion? Ooh, because... it's definitely not happiness. <laughs> So let's talk about that. Why is happiness not your favourite emotion? I mean, I love feeling happy, don't get me wrong. Um, I think happiness has had too much airtime, right? I think um, happiness feels great. And obviously, when you feel happy, you're most likely to be connected to the people around you. The Mm. issue is we have all been taught to strive for happiness in such a way that when we experience something else, we think there's something wrong with us. And actually, we can create um, a struggle around happiness. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. You go through a good period in your life. You're like, I feel like everything's so good. And then when it starts to slip away, you're like, no, 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 no. I need to cling to that. I need to get the happiness back. And rather than recognizing all emotions are fleeting, even the most overwhelming ones, and that happiness will pass almost like clouds in the sky and will return, We often end up so fixated on trying to get the happiness back that we make ourselves miserable in the process. So (laughs) I try to really focus on the fact that happiness isn't my favourite emotion because all of them are equally as important. What's your favourite one? I want to hear it. So did you say what your favourite emotion was? I didn't yet. I've managed to sneakily (laughs) get around it. (laughs) Did I miss that? No, my favourite emotion, I would, like... And it was the emotion I hated for a long time, and I hated anger. I really. Oh my god, hated... this is the one I'm going to say is mine. I can't wait for you to tell me why. Uh, Go for I it. I hated anger 
because it was something that I didn't understand. And I always associated it with destruction and negative masculinity. And um, my ideas of what it meant to be a man was very much centered around rage. Um, And being a black man, it definitely centered around rage. Um, And it wasn't until I had a conversation with my friend, Josh Rivers, who hosts um, Busy Being Black podcast. He basically basically had like a whole podcast episode, like debating why anger is good. And I I was, and and he was like, yeah, it changes. It does everything. For me, I felt like I lost a lot of control or would lose a lot of control um, because I didn't understand how anger was showing up for me yes it was really interesting to get to a point where when i get irritated uh, anger starts to bubble what i the kind of conversation start to have with myself what does that look like Mm -hmm. why am i having these feelings or something what has it triggered Mm -hmm. all of that stuff i start to do this really weird Um, self-examination i love this no it doesn't sound weird and where to and where to push it yes i feel like anger is amazing because it kind of it 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 forces creativity in a really, yeah. in a really, yeah, yeah, in a really strange way. So, um, but I'm interested to hear what you think about anger as well. Okay, so anger is—it's so funny you said that because I was like, I'm going to wait to see what Alex says. But anger is my favorite emotion okay. for similar reasons. Um, so, my experience as a woman was very much like I'm not meant to be angry, right, and right. actually, I was one of those people who perhaps—oh, not perhaps—definitely, I was one of those people who said I never get angry. Yep. Right. Not realizing that I had like a, a river of rage running just below the surface. Yep. Um, and, and it's because I had a very um, unnuanced view of anger. I assumed exactly as you said, it's destructive. Um, but I actually had an experience um, where I spent a lot of time really tapping into anger and allowing myself to vent it and express it in ways that felt safe. So I, for example, one of my absolute favorite things is rage journaling. Have you ever tried this? No, tell me more about that. Okay, okay. So it turns out I I basically for a while realized that um, I was really struggling with my emotions. I was starting to become quite numb and quite flat, actually, because I was so disconnected from my anger. So now one of my favorite things to do is you get a piece of paper (laughs) and you write at the top of it the thing that's made you feel kind of the edges of anger. Because for some of us, we barely feel it and some of us feel overwhelmed by it. So if you're getting in touch with it, it's just when you feel a little bit frustrated. For people who feel overwhelmed, it's that time. Okay. So you write at the top of the page the thing that's making you feel frustrated, and then you go, go for it. I mean, like, allow, you almost like vomit (laughs) the rage out onto the page. Sometimes I'll find myself scratching my pen into the page, almost like tearing the page apart, allowing yourself to say the things that you would never dare say out loud, Mm. allowing yourself to actually go quite over the top with your anger. Then once you've written for 15 minutes, at the end, I tend to write three things that um, I feel I learned from this experience. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, wow, actually, when I had that conflict with that person, I was much more angry than I thought. Oh, wow, I allowed that person to violate my boundaries, but next time I won't because I'm going to do this, right? Then what you do, and this is the most important bit, (laughs) is um, you tear it up. You absolutely destroy it so that no one else is going to read it. And you notice that if you allow yourself to rage journal over a period of time you start to notice patterns like oh I'm actually an incredibly angry person particularly in these scenarios particularly if I feel patronized for example Mm. 
Um, and so rage journaling is my favorite way of expressing anger. I really like the fact that I've discovered a really dark side of myself that has like, very strong boundaries and gets very angry when, when those boundaries are violated. Mm. But what caused me to care about anger and the reason it's my favorite isn't just because I now have a healthy relationship with, with it. It's the fact that anger is such an important emotion. You know, if you think about our ancestors, it will have been anger that caused them to turn towards threats and fight, mm. right? So say someone kind of stumbled into the tribe, or not stumbled, came into the tribe, this is like millennia ago, and stole resources. It was anger that overwhelmed our ancestors and caused them to go and fight to get those resources back. It mm -hmm. kept us alive as a species. Mm -hmm. And for, as you said about creativity, when we experience anger, it is an energy that we can use to make change. You know, for example, if you've been broken up with, the anger stage is the bit that drives you out of bed as you think, have you seen me? Oh no, I am getting back out there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, yeah. work. it's anger where you think, oh, I'm going to show you. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much, there's so much useful energy to be found in anger, as well as it's the important thing that says exactly as I've said, oh, you've crossed something in me. There's an injustice here. Mm -hmm. And I can use this energy to ensure I put that thing right in the future. Yeah, yeah. That is very, very interesting. So anger journaling, I can imagine that being so useful. So because what I used to do, I used to do the morning pages for Julia Cameron. Oh, I love morning pages. Yeah. Yes. Morning yeah. pages. Like, yes. I need to get back into doing it, but because recently I've just not been getting up early enough to start that. Like, <laughs> like, cause I'm, I'm doing a writing group and then I'm like, so I'd have oh, to get, no. I'd have to get up earlier than that. It's long. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like. Also, something's got to give. Something, just, you can't do it all, right? Nope. Yeah. So I just either wake up and do that thing or that thing. So um, I need to get into yeah. back into doing the morning um, journals, morning pages. Mm. And um, in that, in, in those pages, I was like, it would always start off really like romantic and like, <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, oh, the morning, here I am at my desk. Da, 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 da. And then Another it, day on this planet, I fly. Page two, like that effing waste man was saying all this <laughs> stuff about me. And I was just like going in, it's like getting the, the, it was getting harder and yes. harder and harder. But I think yes. that expressing it in that way and then I think the value of that is the tearing it up. Yes, 100%. Because it's the impermanence of these yes. things it just moves yeah. you're like Ooh. yes and it's a great visual metaphor as well as ensuring that no one else is going to find out quite what an angry angry person you are <laughs> and it's funny because i wonder about for you because i think um I, w I wonder if this resonates with you for a lot of us mm -hmm. anger doesn't just arise in the way that i just explained as in in response to an injustice sometimes it comes up as a guardian for mm -hmm. us right so and I think this is particularly true for men who've been told pretty much from day dot that they're not allowed to show vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I assume you yeah. agree with that, firstly. Yeah. I yeah. So <laughs> if you're taught that you're not allowed to be vulnerable, what happens if you feel rejected, if you feel shunned, if you feel shamed? Mm. Anger springs up in your defense, right? The feeling of vulnerability is so intolerable that anger comes up in its place, protecting you disempowering the other person, maybe tearing them down to try and get you back on an even keel with mm. you. And um, that's obviously, that can be really destructive, right? If you're feeling rejected and instead of being able to express that anger comes up, it often ends up leading to rejection as you push the other person away. When you rage journal or anger journal, what you start to notice over time is what was going on underneath, mm. right? So, oh, it seems to be happening every time someone cancels on me. 
or someone speaks over me, or every time I'm around that person who just makes me feel a little bit less than. Mm. So it's so useful in so many ways because it helps you uncover those patterns of why is anger here as well as allows you to release Mm. and then shred it with rage. (laughs) The important thing, though, is also, like, is the reflection that comes after it. Because if you write it all down and then you don't reflect on it... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you have a suggested amount of time for the the journaling process do you say like all right do this i don't know if you do this with like your clients or why not do you say oh eight weeks do this or like and then see where you and see where you're at after eight weeks or do you say do it in perpetuity because as a routine no great question great question so i think when you start off any journaling practice you want to make it something you do each day there's a couple of things around that, which is one, when anyone starts a new habit, they're often excited about it at the beginning. So the first day they're like, I'm going to do 45 minutes. And maybe they do. And second day, like, oh, that was so great. You do another 45 minutes. Day three, though, they say, so I don't have 45 minutes. Oh, I'm going to have to skip it. Day four, the, pat- the new habit is lost. So always when I suggest any new thing, it is do what you can manage. So, for example, maybe you do... 15 minutes if you can sustain 15 minutes for four four days in a row Mm -hmm. do that it's more important frequency than length of time Mm -hmm. next thing is actually if you journal you want to be changing topics every so often so for example say you spend three days writing about this this uh, relationship that's driving you absolutely wild with rage that's fine if you write about the same thing for two weeks you're just going to ingrain the story rather than release it Mm -hmm. Have you ever noticed that when you tell a story enough times, it becomes a truth? Yeah, and I'm, I've, I like people. It's like I had a bit of a disappointment recently, which I, mm-hmm. which I was kept on. Like every time somebody asked me how I was, and then we were having this conversation, it would always come up, and I had to, yeah. and I had to start precursing. Like I don't want to keep saying this story over and over again, yeah. and I had to change and rewire the way that I look yeah. at it because I was yeah. like, I do not want to become this this thing. Like, I don't want yeah. to become that. So, yeah, definitely, I understand 100%. what you're saying. 100%. And actually, I, I missed out the most important step of the rage journaling, mm-hmm. which is once you've finished it and write, written, and <laughs> once you've finished it and have written those three statements, mm-hmm. you must reread it. And that's what you do before you shred it. I know. But I have to say the rereading, the reason it's so important is because it gives you that reflective period that you're saying. Mm-hmm. But also often it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I really mean like I once, this is a real share, mm-hmm. I once um, really pushed my rage in the journal to sh- because I really needed to show myself I could be angry without basically exploding. Mm. So I really pushed how angry I was going to allow myself to be because I was so afraid of anger that I allow myself to, in this journal, bludgeon someone to death. Okay, These are just thoughts, just writing. I needed to see how angry I could be Mm. without it actually destroying me. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was like, right, I'm going to beat you over the head, blah, blah. Anyway, when I reread it, the opposite of... So my fifth thought was, if I allow myself to be really angry, I'll never come back from the brink, yes? Mm -hmm. The reality is I read it, started laughing uncontrollably as I had this vision of me, ridiculous... I think I'm quite ridiculous. Like, ridiculous me ever doing anything violent. And it was the most amazing release to think, oh, my word, I'm allowed... There's a safe space that I can vent my rage no matter how strong it is. I can come back from the brink. Mm -hmm. And actually, when I read the thing I fear, I find it so funny. I know I will never do those things. So 
there's a real purpose. There's, um, when you do that rereading, that's when you get that reflective period. Mm. And that's when you, over time, notice your patterns. Mm. Mm. Okay. Okay. I'm not violent. Just <laughs> <laughs> in my journal. Just in my journal. And so that's good. When it comes to, it's just anger is just such, I I think I kind of made anger much more of a comical thing over time. And I think, I know that you probably watched Inside Out. Have you seen? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, of course yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, I love that film for, for various reasons yeah. and obvious reasons. Um, but when, it's just the, and then when I saw anger there, just like this squat yeah. middle manager, like, yeah. he just yeah. really killed me. So I was like, okay, okay. so yeah. I, it makes sense for, for that to be, for that to kind of be the, the way that I look at all of these emotions in a room and like who's over talking who and who's doing what and trying to figure out like how to protect me essentially yeah with what they've got 100 yeah. and it takes away the power you know one of the things i really notice is that it's the fact that we fear so many of our emotions that makes them so much more overwhelming yeah. whereas when you can externalize and visualize something like anger as the middle manager yeah. it, it take, gives you some of the power back mm -hmm. right suddenly you're like ha ha oh i see okay you do have a role you're allowed to be there and i actually feel kind of a little bit more powerful now that i visualize you not as something that's going to destroy yeah. me yeah. and the importance of that film is exactly what you say we recognized for the first time that film was considering that was not that long ago it's quite worrying that we're only just sharing that message in society yeah. that all emotions have a purpose right. all of them yeah there is no right no wrong emotion they're all useful. They're all energy for change. Yeah. And I think the one that frightens me the most, the only one that is fear. Because mm. I'm just like... Oh, yeah. Because fear just literally just pops up there like, hello. <laughs> like, I do, like, you know, and you, you just... You over just, here. Over here, we're going to bring anxiety. We're going to bring shame. We're going to bring all of that in here. <laughs> like, you know, we're oh, gonna just, just open yeah. the floodgates to all of that stuff. Yeah. So, um, that is actually really, really interesting. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That was. Oh no! Thank you for sharing yours too. I did trap you into telling me yours before I told you mine. But. <laughs> <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just have a quick break here. Are you aware that I have a book club? This month, we are reading The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. Harris is a doctor, therapist and coach, and by using the methods of acceptance and commitment therapy, has devised this book to get us out of the trap of happiness and more into the ideas around what it means to be compassionate to ourselves, delve into acceptance and create a life for expansion. We will be diving into that book on August 13th, right here on Time to Talk, so it's not one to miss. Grab your copy, get your Googles on and bring your notepads. Do you have a suggestion for a new book to do for future book clubs? Let me know. Join the Facebook group. The link is in the description or drop me a message on Instagram or email me alex at alexholmes.co. Anyway, 
time to get into the show. Let's talk about the current nature of social media and psychology. Do you understand what boundaries are? I think that um, social media has done something incredible. Mm -hmm. it, has brought, it has brought the conversation of mental health and psychology to the masses. Mm -hmm. It's very low, low barrier. As long as you have internet and a phone or, you know, device, you can access information about psychology. However, however, a lot of the information out there is deeply unnuanced. Yes. So, for example, I think this is what's behind the, uh, the current understanding around boundaries lacks the nuance it needs. Okay. So I hear people, for example, that saying, um, <laughs> it's just my boundary around something that is actually them just telling someone else what they want them to do. Okay. So a boundary, for example, is the, rule, is the line between you and me. So it's where you end and I begin. Mm -hmm. They are my hopes for relationships. We could call them rules, but they are a range of expectations and wishes. Some of them are flexible. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's say a flexible boundary of mine is timing. Yeah? So I would rather, obviously, the people that I meet turn up on time. Mm -hmm. But if someone doesn't show up on time and they tell me why, I'm like, cool, <laughs> yeah? And the boundary is, in, a, in order for me to feel respected around my time and energy, I need people to show up on time. But it's a flexible boundary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A rigid boundary, however, for example, is around consent. Okay. Yeah? So, for example, if I'm on a date with someone, it's an absolute hard boundary of mine that if I say no, it is respected. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of my personal rules. Some are flexible, some are rigid. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot of people use it as control. Nedra Tower um, said this, Nedra said this brilliant example of it recently, she's which great. is, she's so great. And she gave the example of someone not being able to drink and then saying to their partner, well, I'm not allowed to drink, so you're not allowed to drink. That's just my boundary. <laughs> that's not a boundary, that's a demand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a control request. So I think at the moment, boundaries are a hot topic, but I think they're misunderstood. And I think it's the fault of social media, which has these like short, snappy Things subtitles and text. Yeah. So I always considered boundaries as something like, because I like what you've said, and it's made me think about the way I think about boundaries. Um, mm, go for it. I thought about it, I thought about them as, um, they are obviously they are the borders of you know when somebody else begins and you start or end start um but what about when you when someone crosses them how do you follow through with the consequence mm -hmm. or the result of that boundary being crossed i look at it well, like i looked at, i looked oh, yeah, i looked at it as this thing where it's just like you're in a property like this is the, what i put in the post that i wrote <clears throat> and i was like you're in a property and if you breach the property's boundary Anything that happens in that breach is pretty much your fault. Dogs come and get you, like you know, um, alarms go off. You know, um, there's a there's a bear trap. Um, I don't know, like you know, what I mean, there are things in in place because you have crossed that boundary. If you stayed behind the boundary, then you're safe. Like you know, arrive on arrive on time. Don't call, yes. don't insult me in public. Like that, don't insult me at all. But don't. Do those yeah, things I'd rather you didn't insult me at all. all. Yeah, saying, but don't like tease me 
mm. like, like that if I've told you not to, you know, in those kind of things. Like, okay. so I don't no, know. no, you've never. I totally agree. So I love this visual metaphor, right? But if you imagine that you are the house and, right, and you've decided where your fence is, there are certain fences that are permeable, right? Okay. So, for example, there are people I love who can tease me and actually probably insult me to the ends of the earth right. and the punishment will be not very severe. I'm thinking about my siblings, for example. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So there are different places. Um, that fence around our energy, our time, yeah, and around what we allow is movable. And it depends on the person that you're talking to. And it depends on what they've done, right? Mm. But consequences are an extremely important part of boundaries. But first thing, it's kind of hard to punish someone for violating a boundary of yours if you haven't set it with them in the first place. That's, so that's, that's, that's the point. Yeah. Yes, right. So say, for example, I had a friend who uh, never turned up on time and I was just getting more and more angry. Yeah. Um, it is better to communicate something after the first event mm -hmm. rather than wait till the 20th time when you explode on them and they're confused as you've seemed to be fine for the last 19 episodes of this behaviour. So... There is a way to communicate what you need with people before it gets really tricky, such as um, maybe with the first person when they arrive and say, sorry, they're late, be like, um, actually, it's okay. To, it's okay this time. But next time we arrange, can you let me know in advance when this is going to happen? Just because I have other stuff I've got to do. Yeah. It's gentle, but it's clear. Yes. You don't want to be rushing in after the damage has been done. I expect, though, with my boundary around consent, mm. that I don't need to communicate because that's a kind of a law, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if I say no to someone, I feel like I don't have to communicate. If you violate this, I'm going to do X. Mm. Now, the important thing is once you've communicated your boundary, you stick to the outcome like you've said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I used to work with parents um, who, for example, they'd be trying to set a boundary around sweets with their kids. Okay. And, yeah. So say, for example, they've told their kids, okay, so this week we're not going to have sweets after school or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And the kid goes in and is like, can I have the sweets? And the parent's like, no, not today. Do you remember the, do you remember the rules? And the kid then escalates their behaviour, getting louder and louder and louder. Maybe they throw themselves on the floor, start kicking and screaming. Mm -hmm. If the parent at this point goes, oh, oh, God, okay, let's just go get the sweets. What does the child learn? That kicking and screaming gets answers and results. Yes, yes. exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So the parent does something that makes total sense, right? Yeah. They want an easier life. They don't want to be in the street with a screaming child. But the child is not that the child is nasty. I was going to say a wor worse word and had to come back to it. Less, I, you know, rude you. word about children. I, I was there. It's not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're intentionally doing this yeah. unconsciously people are always testing your boundaries right. and if you say you have a boundary and you give in on it people just learn i just kick and scream louder and i'll get my own way okay. or i just keep doing that thing and she'll give in so boundaries their requests their rules around our lives they protect our energy and our time and our personhood yeah. some of them are flexible some of them are rigid but they all require consequences some of them will be gentle some of them will involve cutting that person out of your life mm. Mm. and some of them in the consent situation may involve the police yes. <laughs> right so they're, they're all different um we have boundaries for everything in our lives and they're all slightly different okay okay that is um 
very nice and Did clear. Did that tie into your visual? So level? I think that was very clear. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. Um, just a quick question, because you spoke about consent. What did, you, what did you think about I May Destroy You, Have you, if you saw it? Did you watch it? When did you make it? I May Destroy You. It's a, it's a show. Oh, I May Destroy You. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I thought sorry. you said I made a story on Instagram. No, no, no. Sorry. Yes, no, I loved it. I said that yes. in one breath. Yes, amazing. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, I May Destroy You, yes. Yeah, yeah. I found that was really, I found that was really good. I think it was a good articulation. On, yes, on, on, it was incredible. On, on consent as well, yeah, I thought that was good. But I'm always interested to see what people think about it. Um, it made a lot of people uncomfortable. Some people never watched further than like the first two episodes because it was a bit, it was a lot. But um, yeah. It was a lot. I think we need to get uncomfortable and we need to be having those conversations. I'm not sure that everyone is ready to watch something, especially if someone's been through that kind of situation before, mm -hmm. watching her slowly piece together through flashbacks, what had happened to her is very distressing. Yeah. But I think we absolutely need to see those kind of stories. That not only was that an incredible piece of work, mm -hmm. it had so much learning to it. Mm -hmm. Not just about consent, but what flashbacks really look like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and memory. And, mm -hmm. and, and, oh, yeah. and, what that, exactly. and what that means and reliable memory as well i always find it interesting this is why i love psychology so much because we are still all trying to figure out what it means to be human and yes and and, and often we do think it's our memories right mm -hmm. that makes us who we are yeah yeah and our identities but you know those those memories can almost always be unreliable um yes, so well, yes 100 every time you access an old memory you change it okay so it's it's really, um, it's really a tricky one. You know, for example, if you think back to something that you did with friends from when you were younger, almost every time you tell it, the story either becomes more narrow and focused on the things that have been repeated mm -hmm. or someone embellished it once and then that's, that new embellishment has been the tied into the story, the story yeah. of when... Yes. Yeah. So our memories are, are actually, um, <laughs> they obviously have a nugget of truth, mm -hmm. but there's often, you know, these little different jewels and gems and yeah. bits and pieces that we've added on top. Yeah. And that's actually something that really bothers me about Instagram right now is there's this really wonderful thing that you talked about in terms of trauma. Mm -hmm. I think it's being talked about more and more on Instagram, but again, in a very unnuanced way. Yeah. So for example, I now have people reach out to me who say things like, I don't remember aspects of my childhood. Does this mean I experienced trauma that I am unaware of? And I'm like, no, it does not mean this. <laughs> Some people, yes. If you have lost memories, it does link to trauma. But what we know about memory is it's very, your early memories are very fragile, mm. right? Actually, we don't lay down memories till roughly two and a half, three. Even after that, people inaccurately date them, um, date their memories. If you imagine memories um, almost being, even though we don't have limited space in our head, it's helpful to imagine it almost like computers, you know, when you're trying to compress a file. Mm -hmm. So lots of those early fragile memories, if you haven't accessed them, almost just disappear. They get overwritten. Mm -hmm. So very few people understand memory. Very few people realise it's very normal not to remember your childhood. It's not a worrying sign at all. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of the memories you talk about each day are very much affected by how you've told them before. <laughs> that is so true. Because when you, and I, I always think about this, like when you think back to your childhood and obviously I want to get onto siblings in a minute. This is, mm. a nice, this is a nice way to kind of go into that. But um, 
when I'm having conversations with my siblings, I'm the oldest. So the memories that I have tend to be a lot clearer of a situation. Yes, because you're older. Yeah. Than my siblings. Oh, I don't remember mm-hmm. that happening. I don't remember this. I don't remember that. And I'm like, we had the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely 10, like, because this happened at... T- and they're like, yes. no, don't recollect. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. And, yes. and then your parents are like, well, this definitely happened because yes. your parents, you know, so they were really, they're obviously adults at the time, so they, they're going to have yeah. access to these things a lot more. And I've always just found it interesting that we can all remember, we can all have the same experience but remember everything so differently. And oh, my word, because perception, though, as well, right? So. Yeah. The first layer is our memories are fallible, mm-hmm. yes. Second thing is it matters what we pay attention to, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know about you, I lose my keys a lot in the house. I'll just put them down and then be like, oh, where have they gone? And I see people all the time say, oh, my word, I think I have a memory problem because this thing happens. I'm like, okay, let me watch you. And I'm like, no, no, you just had a lapse in attention. You were talking to someone else or you are doing this thing. Mm-hmm. You remember the stuff you pay attention to, which normally means the highly emotional things. Yeah. And so the, the third thing is perception, right? So the siblings thing is particularly interesting because mm. <laughs> nearly each sibling in a family interprets uh, everything that happens around them based on what they fear to be true or what they hope to be true. You yeah. know, for example, most yeah. siblings remember one of the siblings being preferred by a parent. <laughs> yes. yes. And that yeah. golden child often remembers things quite rosily if they genuinely were the golden child. Yeah. And the yeah. other siblings remember everything through frustration, as in like, oh, well, I was never the favourite, so that was terrible. Those things they said to me didn't matter or they were actually secretly hating me. Mm-hmm. That's only one example because I'm the youngest. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I was actually often, yeah, I was actually often the golden child sometimes. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, memories are fallible and they're affected by what you perceive to be happening around you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I love this. I love this conversation. <laughs> um, so to get onto siblings, um, I find it interesting what you put in, you've got a chapter, the, the, the very beginning of the book is caregivers, siblings and our family environment. And I'm very mm. big on the family system, I'm, I'm super mm-hmm. interested in it, which is what, kind of why I'm doing what I do, because I'm really interested in w- what that looks like and how we kind of yeah. grow in that. Um, how important is birth order when it comes to well, you know, it's, siblings? <clears throat> so it's important, but it's not everything. Okay. Yes. Because if you think that we're being affected by everything that happens in our lives every moment of the day, we have to treat these things kind of anecdotally, but there are patterns. So, for example... Mm-hmm. I'm going to say, I know you've read the book, but I'm going to say this patterns we tend to see. And then I'm going to ask you if, as the older child, this did, did resonate. Okay. <laughs> so, for example, it tends to be that the oldest child obviously comes into the world, first child gets a lot of attention, hopefully positive attention, mm-hmm. love, nurturance. They're often, you know, quite well protected because the parents are thinking, oh, my word, this child, I hope nothing happens to it. Okay. So it gets lots of attention. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Does he, has he stopped breathing? <laughs> um, so second child comes along. This is kind of quite a serious fall from grace for the first child, right? Because they got all this attention and now there's someone else who's getting more attention. Hmm. I'm going to talk about it as if there's always three. I know some people have no siblings and some people, you know, they're one of two and some people have many more, but it's just easier to think like this. Mm -hmm. Then if a third one comes along, the second one is now the middle child. Okay. So the oldest child tends to become 
the responsible one because they are often praised for the times when they step up and look after their younger sibling. Mm. Often because they are praised for, well, they're given the responsibility because they're older and often because they're praised for taking it on. They take that kind of leadership quality often into their later life. The middle one, I heard I heard about the middle child recently being called like the flyover states in America. I am so finished. Wow. <laughs> because it makes so much sense. <laughs> okay, good. I can't wait to hear. So because the middle one, yeah. they got temporarily, they temporarily got the most attention, but another one came along. And now they are no longer, the, they are neither the oldest, who is the responsible one, nor the youngest, who everyone's now concerned about. <laughs> So often what happens with the middle child is they feel a little bit overlooked, but they adapt by turning to friends outside of the family. They tend to work on their social skills and get their connections through friends in school, for example, or somewhere else. They then tend to develop very good skills at negotiating, having conversations with everyone in the family of every age group but they often report feeling quite left out. So then the youngest one is normally the one that's, by this point, the parents are kind of sure that kids are quite robust. <laughs> They've also maybe started to be a bit like, oh, God, I'm tired. So the youngest one starts to get away with murder. So they then tend to be the kind of cheeky one that everyone kind of envies, who can kind of do no wrong. But often because the siblings, and this isn't always the case, but often because the siblings start to think it's kind of unfair, the little one tends to become the cheeky chappy in order to, you know, keep the attention going mm -hmm. to still fit in within the sibling relationship. Okay. So those, all of those qualities are about adapting within a family and they tend to follow us into adult life. So does that resonate with you? So it resonates in some ways and not in others, basically because of the mishmash of my childhood of what that became. Okay, yeah. And um, obviously I'm the, so I'm the oldest and I have a younger sister, seven years apart. Mm -hmm. Family, we had a, a death, so therefore cousins came to mm -hmm. live with me. Um, well, mm -hmm. they came into our, our home as part of, to, and mm -hmm. our family grew just over night. Wow. And so instead of me being the oldest of one, I became mm -hmm. the oldest of four. Oh my word, but, okay, yeah, yes. Yeah, but they were, two, they were both two bang in the middle of myself and my sister. Yes. So then they became middle. The, the, the middle children. Yes. Um, it probably would have been different if my cousin was older than me and then it was me and then their yes. brother and then my sister. It would have been, yes. the system would have been completely different, but that's just how it yes. ended up being. But then, yeah, so while I identify with the responsibility, I got my phone first, Ooh. I got my keys first, I had to pick people up, I had to drop people off, I had to be home one time. I could not hang about at like, chicken shops after school or yeah. be a vagabond like everybody else. I had to be at yeah. home. School finished at 3.20. My mum expected oh. me home by four o'clock. Yes. Like, that was just the latest I could ever be home, especially... And when the clocks went back, even when yes. it really got darker, I had to be home earlier. <laughs> I had to be home before the sunset. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, so that and was... was it the same rule for your sister, who was seven years younger? So, now, because she was seven years younger... She did get overlooked a lot like, in the early stages because obviously it was a huge, there was a huge shift of like attention that had to happen for like at cool. least two to three years because she was around oh. two when that all happened. So all of that stuff kind of had to happen. Um, so there was, a lot of, there was a huge lifestyle shift that just had to, that was altered there. But um, yeah, ultimately she just became just, I'm just doing this because 
And I am. Like, and she's very lucky. Yeah. Um, well, fortunate anyway. But she's very lucky, very confident, very like... And it wasn't always that way. But, you know, as they kind of grow, because they, they hear you. conversations, they learn things yeah. quite quickly. Like, the conversations that are being had when she's in, what, year five, and everybody else is like, what, year eight, ten, eleven, and yeah. all these different things. So. Well, siblings are a gift, yeah. right? I know that they're your cousins, but the structure Obviously, is still everyone yeah. in the same home. Yeah. And you just learn so much. They teach you invaluable life skills, such as conflict. Mm. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> you've, you've just taught, like, you've just said exactly, I suppose, what um, you've just spoken to exactly what I started this mm. with, that there are patterns that we see follow through life, but there are so many other factors that intervene in life, such as grief, mm-hmm. yep. right? The shift of attention will, I'm assuming, also have not just been around the structure changing, but about around supporting people who've lost someone. Yep. Well, everyone lost someone, but particularly the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and gender, right? So it's different. It's very different having an older son and a younger daughter than if you have an older son and a younger son, because the old, the younger daughter almost always will naturally be given more kind of curfew or mm. rules, right? Because we tend to worry more about young girls. So there's so many factors at play. And so I think much context, it, yeah. so much context. And in a manual for being human, when I wrote it, one of the things that I knew I couldn't do was write a book that was about one topic, because that's not how humans work, mm-hmm. right? Yes, your child is important, incredibly important, mm-hmm. but so is your DNA, yep. right? And so are the life events that happen later in life. Mm-hmm. And so is the media and marketing you consume every day. Mm-hmm. And so is the prejudice that exists in society. Mm-hmm. There is rarely one thing and only one thing that shapes who you are. It's every second of every day. It's that person you walk down the, you know, when you walk down the street and someone smiles at you mm-hmm. and it suddenly brightens your day. Yeah. Or it's that person who sends you the nasty text message or who insults you in public, mm-hmm. right? We are being shaped all the time. But our childhood is definitely fundamental in terms of yeah. it's the soil from which we grow. Yeah. I, and I always find it interesting, especially when new children are, enter the world new humans yeah. enter the world and I was like okay yeah. so we got we got a new human in, in, <laughs> in, in, in this in this joint like what's going on um and I'm and I'm like I'm like observing them like quite often saying like okay so how are they interacting like what's going on there yes and all that stuff and I find it super interesting just um in general but I love what you've what how you kind of linked that to attachment styles and again as you've said previously about the kind of the barrier to entry via social media mm. uh, i remember every there was a point in time when everybody started doing these attachment tests oh yes and um so i thought that was a spider going on dates and getting their new date to do the attachment yeah, style quiz yeah, at the yeah. yeah attachment style like um um, I spoke to Charlotte Fox Weber. I don't know if you do you know Charlotte Fox Weber. I, I, I know this person's name. She's a psychotherapist, yeah. but she worked. Um, she's she has this um, therapy platform called the Examined Life. But, um, oh, I know exactly who you're talking yeah. about. Sorry, yeah, yeah. My, I was being. Oh yeah. She spoke about attachment types, and I was, I was trying to run around and do these tests just to try and figure out uh-huh. all these things. Um, and I love how you've kind of broken it down because I've, I've spent a lot of time with attachment types. I've read attached. Yes. I've, I, I'm aware of my attachment. Yes. I've spoken to my therapist. We're, we're working on things. Okay. Amazing. And, um, Amazing. But I love how you've broken it down with regards to avoidant, obviously anxious, secure, but you said avoidant attachment is like a cat. Yes. <laughs> this book, this book spoke, this book like spoke to puppy. me because this book spoke to me because, as you can tell, I'm very visual. 
and like yes. audio things. So, like, so when I think, so I picture a cat there, and then you said, <laughs> yeah. and then you said, the anxious is like a puppy. Yes, and bouncing around like hi, 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 <laughs> initiating <it>. contact <laughs> so continuously. Let's let's talk attachment types. Let's, yeah, I'd uh, love to. Let, let's delve in. There. So, what are they exactly, and why do they matter? Oh, great question. Great question. I like that you used your interviewer's voice as yes, you did sorry. it. Too. <laughs> I went into the BBC. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. Okay. So essentially the word attachment just means bond, okay. right? It just means relationship between two or more people. Mm-hmm. Um, your attachment style, we can imagine is like relational programming, or we can imagine it's a blueprint, a roadmap, which you use to understand relationships in your life. And essentially, it develops in your very, 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 very early life. So say, for example, your bond, your attachment with your caregivers, so whoever it was that raised you, was attuned to your needs. I'm not saying they responded every time you cried all the time, right? I'm saying that they just met your needs in the way you needed them to. They saw your emotions, made sense of it for you, and soothed you. If they did this consistently, we usually imagine that people develop a secure attachment style, right? The belief that other people can be there for them and will want to be there for them. If you have a secure attachment style, generally it means when you meet someone later in life or at any age, you're not threatened by it. You believe that they can be there for you and will want to. It's not arrogance, it's incredible. (laughs) And we believe that about 50% of the population have a secure attachment style. Then insecure attachment style, There's actually more than just avoidant and anxious. There's also um, disorganized, but we think that's about 2% of the population. So I won't go into that too much here, but essentially you can imagine it that the child tried the avoidant attachment style, tried the anxious attachment style to stay close and stay safe, but neither worked. So they ended up, instead of having a distinct plan, had to just keep changing what they did each time. So... The avoidant attachment style, as you say, is like like a cat. Mm -hmm. I have an avoidant attachment style. Mm -hmm. This means that if you have an avoidant attachment style, it tends to mean that you learned early on that people won't necessarily meet your needs, that they reliably won't meet your needs. doesn't mean that, like, I had a great relationship, actually, in my childhood with certain people, but other people, for example, might say to you when they see that you're distressed, oh, you're just tired. Right. So you learn early on that certain people will reliably not be able to show up for you. So what do you do to cope? You shut down. You become hyper independent. Mm -hmm. You become that child and then that adult who, yes, has close relationships, but holds people slightly at arm's length and never asks for help because you don't need to. You can do everything for yourself. And the reason it's like a cat is because you interact with people on your own terms. <laughs> you can nuzzle up to that other person like, oh, hello. But if they nuzzle back too close, For too long. you scratch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't scratch people, but I shut down, yeah. right? Then the anxious avoidance style, uh, ang- sorry, anxious attachment style is generally that a child learned early on that someone will be intermittently be there for them so for example one moment you might have a caregiver who's listening who's doing all the things you need and then the next moment they've disappeared or maybe the next moment they've switched to needing you more than they can be there for you so you learn intermittently people will be there for me so how do you adapt well 
you can't use logic or shutting down. Instead, what you do is you initiate contact as much, as many times as you can, knowing that at some point that person will be there for you. Mm-hmm. So like a puppy, they're bouncing around like, hey, I'm here, want to hang out? How about now? How about now? How about now? Now? <laughs> yes. yeah. And as a kid, it's so smart, right? They often get described as clingy or needy children, but that's not a negative. That's an incredibly smart way of ensuring you get your needs met. And as an adult, when you have an avoidant attachment style, you engage tend to engage in push-pull behavior. So, for example, you might go on a date, seem really keen, and then shut down and push people away for a bit until you feel calm again, and then you reconnect. Mm. As an anxious person, you might start reading into the messages, what wasn't there? Are they trying to reject me? Mm. Are they not interested? But your, your coping skill is attention, right? So you meet someone, you're excited, you give them attention, you think that they're pulling away, so you initiate more interaction. Do you see what I mean? So you just keep giving more and more attention to this relationship. Mm-hmm. If the other person can tolerate that, fantastic. But sometimes what can end up happening is you end up overwatering the seeds of a new relationship and drowning it. So there are both, there are, they're both incredibly smart ways of adapting as a, ch- as a child mm-hmm. that can sometimes get in the way of you being able to connect as an adult. Okay. That is the clearest <laughs> and crispest way I've ever heard it explained in my life. Oh, that's so nice. It's actually amazing. <laughs> wow. What about fearful avoidant? Yes. What about that? Because I feel like okay, that, so isn't, isn't that anxious avoidant, is that what they say? I know there's so many. I know there's so many, but, um, yeah. So... It depends. So some people talk about it as if there are many, many different styles. Sometimes fearful avoidant goes into the disorganized attachment pattern. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's classified into different areas. Okay. So it depends. But basically some people are a little bit of two. So, for example, desperately wanting a relationship, but the, the minute someone gets close, it's too overwhelming. So they run away. Mm-hmm. And then they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm. Yeah. What does that but just so you know, we can all we can all earn secure attachment, right? Because you hear this and you think, oh my word, I'm doomed. Um, I was just about to ask, can we free ourselves from these things? <laughs> <laughs> because the way that we've about, we, the, way, the way we've attached ourselves to these titles, I, mean, I know that we're a society that likes labels and boxes and yes. things and positions and places and things that just want to make us make sense of ourselves. So, yes. but then when. You know, if secure is here and then avoided yeah. is there and fi- and anxious is there <laughs> yeah. and then there's disorganised <laughs> and you're just like, where, yeah. where do... I did a lot of hand gestures, by the way, for people. That oh, I loved it. I loved but, all of them. Um, it's... I guess it's about trying to become secure, is yeah. it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can earn secure attachment. I think there's something I just want to add here, which is psychology can make everything sound like a problem. Mm-hmm. It can make everything sound like... It's pathological. We can, if, sometimes we can hear psychology when it's without nuance, yes, as, oh, my word, I have a problem that's unchangeable. I would never have written a manual for being human if I didn't believe people could change. <laughs> if I didn't know that brains are, your, our brains are d- adapting each day. So whatever you hear about psychology, if it ever gets heavy, you can always find a way towards the light. And when it comes to attachment styles, yes, we call it earned security. Mm-hmm. So... One of the simplest ways to earn secure attachment is to actually have people with secure attachment styles around you. Okay. People, so, for example, if you have an anxious attachment style, you will notice that if someone is able to consistently show you that they're not going to disappear on you, 
They're not going to intermittently be there for you like your early relationships. The alarm bells in your head stop ringing. You start to feel more relaxed. That puppy-like behavior becomes charming Mm. and not driven by anxiety, but driven by desire to connect. Mm -hmm. If you have an avoidant attachment style and someone allows you, I suppose, to keep pulling in and disconnecting, allows you space, but also gives you firm boundaries, as in, I'll be here, but I need X from you in return you also start to relax and recognize you can disconnect without having to push people away. So having people in your life, particularly people you date who have a secure attachment style, really helps. You know, one of the reasons we do therapy rather than um, the the main reason that therapy is different to reading a self-help book, actually, is because people heal in relationships. So often as a therapist, and certainly, you know, my therapist, I definitely um, have gained so much from because your therapist offers you a secure attachment. They are consistently there for you. They consistently listen. You know that they will be there. So we heal in relationships. So that's one of many ways in which you can move towards a secure attachment style. But the other thing is, if anyone's listening and they're unsure of their attachment style, buy a manual for being human and read about each attachment style because there are so many things you can do to get there. And Dr. Soph doesn't even ease you in. It's literally, bang, first chapter. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you, you, you're fine. Like, it's not going to be like, you know, well in there. <laughs> it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to roof around. Page five. <laughs> Page five. But, um, yeah, thank you for that. I think that should be a lot clearer for, for people um, to kind of get their head around because I think a lot of this stuff is good to understand and to and just to get just I think we're going through especially in the wake of COVID and um, the mm-hmm. pandemic people are really trying to understand themselves better because they have to sit with themselves a lot of the time there's yeah. a lot of questions that are being raised and things of that nature and I think that um, what you've created here is an amazing piece of just just literature for people to kind of thank you that's so connect, amazing connect thank with you. themselves in a way that makes sense to them um but the book is great it's got loads of different uh, things i would love to have got into um the trauma responses um and and, and other things but you know we can time. talk about that next time but we can talk about that <laughs> next time because i feel like i'm yes. gonna probably come back Actually, I probably will come back with a di- with a different episode around um, a different chapter, and I think perfect. I'd love we that. We will break down the book, <laughs> literally <laughs> yeah, workshop it. <laughs> but, um, I'm so game. But yeah, so that was that was really good. So um, you probably said this, but I want you to uh, answer mm. this question around. So, what is it that we need to know and learn about being human that we? have forgotten or have not been taught, um, in your opinion? Okay. I could answer that in many ways, so I'll go for something simple, because when I get excited, I talk a lot, so I'm going to calm it down, which is (laughs) almost everything that you do as a human makes sense. That stuff that you worry about, that you think, oh, my word, it's only me that experiences this, there's something wrong with me, is absolutely shared by others and is likely to be very, very normal. And almost every symptom that we see come into a clinic as a psychologist that people worry about, such as, let's think of some examples, perfectionism, Mm. uh, emotional eating, 
Literally everything that everyone does, avoidant attachment styles, so relationship issues, isn't something wrong with you. It's an attempt or a strategy that you often unconsciously made in order to stay safe in the world. You know, most people become perfectionists because they figure out at some point in their life, if I can do everything perfect, I'll be worthy of love. An avoidant attachment style arises because people think, People won't want to be there or can't be there for me when I need them to. So I have to do this on my own. And our brain then tries to push people away because if we allow them in, we feel unsafe and we feel like they'll hurt us. Mm -hmm. Emotional eating, for example, is a very smart way of managing your emotions in the absence of another coping skill. If you think about, for example, babies, you know, they are most soothed when they're being fed by their caregiver. Mm -hmm. They are often after they've done something really good or they've had a birthday, they are treated with cakes and parties. So when, for example, we're struggling, it makes sense that you would turn to some kind of treat because it takes us back to those early memories. It fills our bellies and makes us feel grounded. So almost everything that you're criticizing yourself for ever worry about is likely to be something very normal that can be understood and is probably a very smart way that you adapt you know you adapted that maybe just needs to be replaced so you're not alone you're normal and you are human <laughs> oh thanks so much dr Sarah, for that um, and i think that's one of the big takeaways of this show as well is just to recognize and understand that we aren't alone <clears throat> we yeah. have a sense of belonging that is you know building this community here this is what you know this is where we sit we are together yeah. in this um yeah. and it's okay to it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to feel in the way that we the way yeah that and the more feel. we share that we struggle with how we feel the more likely we are to connect with people around us yeah. you know keeping up that facade of i'm totally okay normally holds people at arm's length making them think oh no i'm not okay but they are okay what's going on so yeah community being okay and being real with who we are is how we're going to make change in this world okay um got a question um if you could speak to your you know 15 year old self right now mm. what would you say to her you're good enough as you are mm. you don't need to, pre to pretend to be someone you're not and when you're 18 and have panic attacks don't worry someone will understand you you don't need to think that you're losing your mind mm. and in fact it's going to be one of the most important things that happened to you because that's how you'll become a psychologist yeah you want to see how it works and why it happened yeah <laughs> I have yeah. this vision of you just like getting on the back of a Harley with like, yeah, uh, and just like you know, cruising the streets, <laughs> like running. Yeah, I want that vision to be true. I'm gonna rewrite my memories so that that one is Do true. That. You know what? I mean, when we look back on who we were when I was what 18, I yes. just was not. I was just not this person. No, 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 no me and, neither. And, and, me if, neither. and if anything, that is one thing that we should be we could, we should recognize about change. That when we look back, do we see the same person? And I think that's something that we that we really need to to recognize. Embrace. Yeah, because everybody gets so stuck in the mm. in in the here, but they don't recognize where we're coming from a lot of the time. Yeah, and that change change will come in the future, no matter how bleak it feels right now. Yeah. So I've got this playlist. It's a mishmash of all of the of the kind of personalities of my guests. So, so there yes. is no genre request. There is no anything. It's just a, a song that represents you. Okay. So um, I love this question. 
just so you know, the whole way through uh, school, my biggest fear was someone would ask me what music I liked. So it's quite funny that we're talking about this because I felt like it was a it was a test. It was a trap. Yes, like, oh, oh. But don't worry, I'm not there anymore. I can definitely share with you um, a song. So there's this song called Love and Hate in a Different Time. Okay. It's by, and it's funny because I've never seen that said the name out loud, Gabrielle's or Gabriel's. Okay, okay, no idea. And what I love about it is not only do I love the title, you know, if we think about a manual for being human, what I'm saying is that there are things from different times, loves of people mm-hmm. and the hate that we come across or perceive that shape who we are. So firstly, I love the title. Secondly, it's got a strong 70s vibe, even though it's present day. Yeah. And it just makes me feel really sassy. Yeah. Like I like to put it on in the background and kind of like, you know, no one listening can see me dancing in front of you, but it just makes me want to move. And yeah, um, yeah it's just absolutely the song I will have destroyed probably by the time your playlist comes out because I tend to over listen to something until I cannot listen to it anymore but it feels like exactly it summarizes how I want to feel this summer in London okay remind me of the name again love and hate in a different time in a different time okay so I'm gonna get that down um but I do get I do get in a get trapped in a song loop myself I will be I will play it I literally have at the point of recording I've been playing Burner Boy, Georgia Smith, and Wizkid, and it's very, very particular songs. Like, it's not even <laughs> like I'm playing their albums and I'm, like, dubbing into yeah. music. I'm playing, like, four songs. And Amazing, I, And I yeah. put them in a queue, and that's it. Yes. That's all it I is. I do exactly <laughs> And then it just messes my... When I my, a new song. Yeah. Sorry. It messes my, my Spotify algorithm up, because when it tells you at the end of the year, oh, you're most played songs, it'll be, like, that song, but, like, I was trapped yeah. in a song loop. <laughs> like, yeah. When I discover a new song, I feel both elated yeah. and devastated yeah. because I know that this is the highway to hating it. Yeah, I'll be like, I'm stuck here now. This is where I'm at. This is life <laughs> yeah. right now. This is me. I'm here. Yes. This is what I'm doing. Um, and two books that my listeners can, that you know, we can tap into to get some okay. insights. So I'm going to spare you on saying my own book because I've talked about it the whole way through. Instead, I'm going to talk about um, Attached which you've already mentioned. I just think, um, I just think it is the single best psychology book written or published at least to date that makes psychology and relationships and us understanding ourselves accessible. I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And the second one is the midnight library by Matt Haig. Have you read it? Beautiful choices. Both of them. Unbelievable. Yeah. Attached had me by the throat, like most, oh my word, most yes. of the time I was From reading it. One. It literally just gripped me and just said, look, <laughs> this is what we're doing. Okay. <laughs> you can't close this book. <laughs> you can't do it. Yeah. Um, also, did you have those moments where you were like, oh, I thought that was a personal quirk. It turns out no. I am textbook. Every page. I was like, no, that's my personality. You are not original, my G. That's basically what I was doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Honestly, that's what I read on every page. Um, yes. Beautiful books. I loved The Midnight Library. I think that that is such a beautiful concept. Um, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Sir, do you want to explain a little bit about... Yes. Yes. Book? So it's actually a fiction book mm-hmm. and it follows the story of a woman who wants to end her life. But I think what's so spectacular about it is often when we want to learn about psychology, when we read self-help or when someone gives us advice, we often feel quite defensive. Even if we want that advice, it can feel quite patronizing and quite irritating. (laughs) The beauty of the Midnight Library is you're learning real important life lessons through someone else's story. 
he's teaching us psychology without making us realize without letting us know that he's actually giving us life advice it's spectacular the story is wonderful it's beautifully written and in fact if you can listen to it the audiobook is stellar that's what i did um yeah yeah and i i lived through that book it was amazing um great great stuff well thanks so much uh where can people find you so well dr sophie is very easy to find um so my instagram is at underscore d-r-s-o-p-h there is someone else who is at dr sophie and i really want to know who they are so So you can find me on instagram Mm -hmm. um you can find me on my website website drsoph.com so Mm d-r-s-o-p-h.com and yeah you can find me on Amazon right now to buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> and buy the book, you should. Um, thanks so much for joining me this week, um, Dr. Surf. Uh, beautiful conversation. We will be back for the trauma responses. That's what we're going to be yeah, doing. Yeah, I bloody loved it. Thank you so much. <laughs> right, no worries. And we'll, everybody else, we'll catch you next week. As ever, thank you so much for listening to the show. This episode was produced by Pure Creation Media over with Ryan Nile, my phenomenal producer. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to Dr. Sophie Mort for joining me on today's show. And I look forward to catching you all next week when we talk about The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris.